1992, having been um, an alien in Doctor Who in the past and an extra in the bill, Esther Freud swapped acting for writing. She immediately found success with her fantastic autobiographical novel, Hideous Kinky, um, which I always misread as Hideously Kinky, which must be very disappointing for the people who download the book um, or the film with Kate Winslet. Um, a year later, she made The Granty List um, along with Will Self and Jeanette Winterson, among others. Her eighth novel has just been released. It's here. Set in 1914 in um, a sleepy Suffolk village, um, Mr. Mac and Me, which I've taken to calling Mackie and Me, uh, naturally, um, is on the eve of war, and it's about the unlikely friendship between a wee boy, Thomas Mags, um, and a pair of people who come from far away Scotland um, to stay in this village. Those people are Charles Rennie Mackintosh and his wife, Margaret. It's a fantastic story. I think it's one of her finest novels. I'm thrilled that she's here tonight. Please welcome Esther Foy. This book um, is, is the narrator of this book, as, as Damien said, is a, a boy of about 12, 13 called Thomas Maggs. He is the son of the publican of, um, of a small village in Suffolk. And he is the youngest son and the only son surviving, but he's, he's lame. And his parents, or his mother particularly, is desperate that he doesn't turn to what he most wants to do, which is to become a fisherman. Um, because she doesn't believe that he'll have the physical strength. So she sends him to a school, hoping that he will better himself. Mr. Runnacle's School, it's called. I think that's all you need to know. It's pretty early on in the book. So, Mr. Runnacle's is losing patience with me. When he looks through my book, he says I must copy out my work at home, with no sketches and no blots. Neat and tidy, that's what he wants from me, without a single picture of a boat. There's a table in the public bar set against the wall, just big enough for my ledger, and I like to sit there on a Saturday morning when Father is away over at the brewery ordering the ale. But this Saturday, a man comes in, not anyone I've seen before, and he stands at the bar talking to Mother. He's got a gruff voice, low, hard to understand, with rolling R's and sudden lifts and burrs. And if I close my eyes, I can hear the chimes and rises in it, just like the girls who come down from the highlands every year to gut and pack the herring. But those girls are mostly red and pink and jolly, whereas this man is dark with a stern, pale face and eyes as black as bark. Glasgow, he tells mother, is where he's from. Scotland's first city, a great bustling place, the best there is, although he's ready, just for now, to be leaving it behind. He coughs then, and a shudder runs through him, even though it is July and warm. He orders a pint of beer and a half of stout to take back to his wife, who's preparing a picnic at Millside, and he hands over two stoppered flasks to be filled. Millside. I cease my copying, and I listen hard to see if he says anything about the Millside ghost. I want to ask him if he's ever heard the sound of apples falling. A woman had been buried there, a tall woman, they found her remains when they put a new mill shaft in, and the sound of apples falling, heavy as a cart, tipped up, is a sound that's been heard just before they see her, gazing in at them through an upstairs window. Before I have a chance, the man is standing at my table, looking down. Very nice, he says to me, 
and I feel myself heat up as I try to push the mess of my first copying out of the way. No, he bends closer, and asking if he can, he lifts the paper with the smudges and inspects my margin full of boats. There are yawls and wherries, barges, smacks, and one long yacht with a cabin and a galley. Do you make these sketches from memory, he asks, and I have to look up at him to catch the oddness of his speech. Yes, I say, because I don't want Mother knowing how often I sit beside the river and copy the boats that are moored there, or how many hours I spend staring into the glass cabinets of the sailors' reading room where models of all the greatest ships are on display. Schooners and frigates, warships and cruisers, and one big old fishing boat Danky made one winter when there was no fishing to be done. There's a painting, too, of the Battle of Sol Bay, with the fire ships blazing and the cannons crashing into the wooden hulls of the frigates, as alive to me now as when George Allard first told me the story. Very nice, indeed. The Scotland hands back my book, and he pays Mother her money and goes out with his flasks. It is only a day or two before I see the Scotsman again, walking along beside the river. Mac, he is called. At least, that's what they call him when they whisper his business in the bar. And now I see why he is making so much talk. He looks for all the world like a detective. He's wearing a great black cape and a hat of felted wool, and he is puffing on the pipe as if he's Sherlock Holmes. He has a bad foot. I hadn't noticed that before. His shoe is all stacked up, although it doesn't stop him walking fast with his stick hitting the ground so that I have to hurry after with my own twisted foot to keep him in my sights. He crosses the bridge, and I keep down behind the dunes as he heads for the beach. Every few minutes he halts and looks back, as if he suspects he might be being followed. But it can't be me, he sees. I know the land too well. It's getting dark. There's a big moon, pale as cloud, hanging over the sea. And for a long time, he walks along the tide line. I keep to the highland, dipping down into the marron grass whenever he looks round. But then it seems that he accepts he is alone, because he stops and stares out at the waves. Must be searching for clues of some kind just like Mr. Holmes, and he's looking so hard he doesn't seem to notice how the water is washing in around his boots. I leave him to it and go back to the harbour to see if any of the night fishermen have come to untie their boats. But all is quiet, so I sit on the wall, wondering what Mother will say now that I've missed my chores, and wishing I hadn't seen that look on Father's face, which means it is a drinking day and there's nothing I can do. I'll wait, I think until he's too unsteady to lash out. And then there he is, Mac, standing right in front of me, the pipe puffing white into the night. Enjoy your walk, he asks, and without even the flicker of a smile, he limps away up the street and over the green, so that for a long while, even though I'm half starved for having missed my supper, I'm too frightened to follow. That was brilliant. Um, it's such a spooky book. Um, there are all kinds of echoes and ghostly goings on, things happening in the present that maybe have happened in the past or maybe repeated again. So reading it, you're it's kind of slightly anxious-making experience in a lovely way, an anxious-making experience. And I know that the inn is partly or largely inspired by your house and the village that we're talking about is Walberswick. Tell us about the house and 
and the village and how you've channeled them in the book? Well, um, I had heard the story about Mackintosh arriving in Wolverswick in 1914 in the village of Wolverswick from someone who'd lived there all his life. And he told it to me in the way I'm sure all the writers in this room will, will know, like, here's a story for you. And you always wish that that was a story for you because often it is such a good story, but sadly not for you. Mm. It's like, yeah, maybe someone could tell that story, but for me it's just an anecdote and you think, I'm just going to have to let that go. But I thought about it and I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could tell that story? But I, I knew nothing about Charles Randy McIntosh. I couldn't imagine how I would tell his story. But when I, um, well, me and my husband bought, bought this cottage in, in the village and we bought it from, um, he wasn't a relative of mine, but he kind of felt that he was because he had bought it from an uncle of, a cousin of my father's who had inherited from another relative. And this house had been owned and lived in since the mid-40s by kind of Freudish people, as we call, as I think of them. And they had, for some reason, each person who'd lived in this house had left it with um, every single thing in it. And, um, so nobody had, so when they moved out, they didn't get rid of the furniture no. or the, the linen. Everything was just as they'd left it. They just walked out and that was it. They just walked out and they had also labelled everything. So and I, weird. It's so weird. And it caused, I mean, unfortunately, we're both quite hoarderish people. I can see that someone else might have just gone, okay, clear out this house, let's paint it and start again. But we kind of went, could you paint it? But could you just like, just move that picture and put it down and then put it up again and then just move that weird sideboard into the middle of the room and then move it back, because we were so fascinated by all the strange things in the house. What was in there? Tell us about some well, of the things. Well, it was really furnished. It wasn't just furnished a bit. Even Every drawer was, you could hardly open it, tea towels, and tea cozies, <laughs> and then napkin rings, each one with the name of someone who'd once used them. And I found that all quite spooky. And um, But also really weird things were labeled, like there was a great big heavy amethyst, which said amethyst on it. <laughs> and then... Um, there was a really low beam, which my tall husband experienced more than me, and it said low beam on it, but you only ever saw it just when you'd knocked your head. So I'd always hear, fuck, ah, low beam. Oh. Um, weird things. I actually have found a few things the other day when I, I was writing about it, and, um, and then there was a lot of sewing paraphernalia and kind of quite a few handmade aprons and things. So sewing box was great. It had a funny old tin of old German sweets which says pins on but after a while, I thought, it's so good. Maybe I'll start labeling everything. Instead of going, I wonder where the pins are. I go, pins. The pins are in here. The fact that the pins were all rusted. And when you tried to use them, they were kind of with rust halfway through. But, yeah, what wasn't labeled was what, really. What evidence did you find um, of Macintosh's visit? Because he had been to, been to the village, stayed in the inn. The inn became your house so yeah. was w w was there any sense or was there any act did he leave a thing a, a lovely kind of little sketch oh, of the Glasgow yeah, School of Art perhaps? that would have been so nice. fantastic well the one thing that um that the man who who we bought the house from had made a, a a history of the of the house and um it had actually been the pub and while it was the pub I mean it had been the pub he, his history starts in sort of eight, 1730 or so it was probably the pub before then. That's as far back as he could find. And um, he detailed all the most horrendous, sad, tragic, short lives of various publicans and their families. Um, but then in 1914, he said, and a famous visitor came to the village and stayed in this pub. So I thought, hmm, that could be a way in. I started writing about the house, thinking this 
not sure whether to write about it at a house now or whether the house when it was a pub. And I wanted to get Macintosh involved. And eventually, I hit on Thomas. And I got Thomas because the one thing that wasn't labeled in the house was there was a little ghostly presence in the back hall. The house was quite cold. It had these thick, thick walls from, I guess, from way back. And um, in the darkest, coldest part of the house, there was just a little bit of a ghostly presence, which you wouldn't notice unless you were, like me, slightly listening out for it. And um, I always used to just say hello to this boy. I don't know. He wasn't called Thomas. He didn't give him a name. There he was. It just just used to kind of feel somehow that it was rude not to just say something to him as I just passed not by. Rude I know not it to speak to the ghost. So no, we're all nodding like yeah. it's normal. Just, it's you fine. know, I just used to kind of make that hi yes. as I walked through. No, it's the, fine. As in Suffolk houses, often the bathrooms are downstairs. I don't know why. I, I, when we bought the house, had some changes made. I said to the builder who had been born in the village, do you think it would be possible to put a bathroom upstairs? And he went, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> as if, like, that doesn't happen in Suffolk. It's so weird. I just completely accepted it. No, it's not going to happen. So that was it. But you had to kind of go down the stairs. And in the middle of the night, yeah, it wasn't my favorite thing to have to say, hello, I know you're there. Hi, Thomas, don't look. Bar. Yeah. Um, and, it was and very useful, finally. Thank God for these things he got into the book. But the book that, you're, that, that you were talking about now is not the book that you started writing. I mean, you had started another story. Yeah. Um, why, what was it like and why did you stop with that story? And will it ever come back? Um, I don't know. Actually, I weirdly, I'd started writing that other story before my last book, Lucky Break, and abandoned it then in favour. But I still had high hopes for it. I thought, this house is so great. I want to use the labels, um, the ghost. Um, I think the one thing I'd really missed out ever considering was that the ghost wasn't scary. So writing a ghost story when the ghost is entirely benign, mm. um, that didn't work, but I hadn't quite realized that. I tried to make the ghost scary, but I hadn't. Also, they went off, you know, you can write and write, and it's horrible to admit to yourself when something isn't working. It's happened a few times, and you're, you're full of doubt about writing anyway, but there's sometimes the doubt tips over the feeling of optimism. And with this, I started to write a subplot. I was feeling so bored by my main character who was bringing up two <laughs> kids and basically refurbishing the kitchen. And I was like, oh, no, I, I just, I didn't seem to find a way to get out of the sort of details of domestic life that she need to, before the haunting came. I thought, I know, I'll give the ghost a voice. And Thomas just came right in, you know, he said, my name is Thomas Maggs. I was born upstairs in the small room, not the smallest room with the outshot window. Something I still have no idea what is an outshot window, but it was in the history of the pub, and it just spoke to me. And I, I was there. You and then, once I knew where he was born and that he'd used the outshot window word, I just wanted to be with him, and I just got rid of the rest. Yeah, so you junked the whole thing and went with, went with Thomas and his friendship, unlikely yeah. friendship, with Charles Winnie Macintosh. Let's talk about Mac and why he was in the village in the first place, because that's something that I didn't know, know about him. Well, I started researching Macintosh during the course of writing this book. I knew nothing about him apart from that he had designed the Glasgow School of Art and that he was a great British architect, much revered, and that he had spent some time in this village. And that while in the village, he'd drawn a series of beautiful watercolour pictures, and they're often for sale you know, in the one gift shop. And that was all I knew. So I started to research him, and his story was so fascinating and interesting. It was actually what really propelled me 
to dump the modern section because I thought I can't get enough of him into that subplot. Whereas if that was the whole book, his friendship, Thomas's friendship with Mackintosh, I started to realize could give me a chance to actually tell Mackintosh's story within this book. It's almost like writing a novel and putting a, a small biography of someone really fascinating into the novel. But um, it doesn't feel shoehorned though, like that. I mean, he is a character. He is alive, and I'd I'd only ever known him as a kind of, you say, British artist. I say Scottish artist, but but you know, but, but you know, we were kind of you know forced to forced to sort of go to the school of art, which I didn't appreciate at that point in my life when I was very young, and and of course then it went on fire, and we 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 talked about that. You did get to visit there before the yeah. fire, so you saw the amazing library with these. Um, carvings which which are systematic and have some kind of code embedded in them but nobody has ever been able to break the code of what what was carved into that room and now it's now it's gone I mean we have pictures of it but there's just room full of incredible it felt like being in a forest didn't it he, he was he was he was putting little secret messages and codes into so much of what he did actually and I started to realize is that um, I got so involved in seeing the way his art developed through my character Thomas's eyes that I had forgotten that I'd actually probably read this about a year before in some of my research, when I realized that in all his flower pictures, he'd put birds into the flowers. And I thought that I had invented, I had realized <laughs> I was the only person. And then I was, I was so excited, and each time Thomas saw a new flower picture and realized, oh my God, hang on, in fact, I can see one now, there's a bird. I was sort of screaming in my study going, oh my God, look at this. <laughs> and then I, I realized, actually, I probably read this somewhere years ago, because I'd worked so long on this book ultimately and then I, I was looking back over some notes and seeing that I'd even written that at one point when he put some um, drawings forward for what became House for an Art Lover which is now built in Glasgow yes, yes. Um, that he'd actually used Der Vogel which is the German word for bird as his pen name so I had to calm down I was not a artistic critical genius <laughs> but at this point in his life neither was he thought to be i mean he no. was having a bit of a nervy bee he was yeah. writing begging letters to people saying please yeah. buy my pictures yeah. um and one of the reasons that people began to be suspicious about him is, is that he was writing these begging letters in german to germans well the most success that he well what what brought you asked the question which i didn't yes. really answer what brought him to suffer yes. in 1914 was that he had been a real um, rising star in his in his youth, and he had won the commission, age 27, to design the Glasgow School of Art. Partly because he was studying at the old Glasgow School of Art, and the ma and the director of the school um, had encouraged him. He he admired him hugely as a young artist and architect, and and encouraged him to put forward his plans. And when he did, he was obviously instrumental in making sure that his plans got chosen. Mm. And they had um, chosen. They had found a, an incredibly difficult site to build the Glasgow School of Art on. It's incredibly Very steep, steep and yeah. it's narrow, and, and they wanted a big building, and they also wanted a plain building. That was the brief. But his building um, started out plainer than it became, and um, but he won. And so he had some incredibly successful years. Um, he 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 won the commission, but on behalf of his firm. So they, they had the money to only build the first half because it was obviously going to be more expensive than they could find the money for. And when the first half was finished and they opened it as a working school, his name was nowhere. No one mentioned him and he wasn't even invited to the opening dinner. Just the, the um, directors of the firm, Honeyman and Kepi, who had you know, been responsible for getting the building up, which mm. was no mean feat, mm. but he was the designer. And he 
was spurred on with ambition. And in those years between the first and the second stage being built, which was seven years, he did incredible things. He, he built other school, schools, um, churches. Um, he designed private houses for people. Him and he married his incredibly talented artist wife, and they started to be really recognized in Europe. And they went to Vienna. Uh, they put in these designs for various things for the Viennese Secession, which is highly sort of renowned at the time. And um, people thought they were just incredible. And so, sadly, when by the time the second stage of the building was finished in 1911, he was renowned in Europe, but you know, Britain, Glasgow particularly, mm. were over him. He, had, he was difficult, he was a drinker, he was a perfectionist. He, the houses he designed for people, he wanted it to be exactly as he designed it. So if he designed the foyer with these glints of beautiful purple glass and, and, and the woman of the house put some yellow flowers on the hall table, absolutely no he would take them you know that he wanted every single last detail to be in his control and obviously most people can't accept that kind of mm. level of um, um influence from the architect so his career started to go downhill also glasgow at that time started to suffer from an economic crisis so there wasn't as much work coming in generally but people decided he was too difficult and he Basically, the last few years he was living in Glasgow, he had no work whatsoever. And so the first phase of Glasgow School of Art and the last phase were his two first and last big commissions. And everything else that he did happened in between those years. So how did he end up in Suffolk? And are we kind of out of the way village? Well, I mean, what took him, was there a friend there? Was yes. There, you know, was there um, Francis Newbury, who was the director of the Glasgow School of Art, had a house in Wolverswick. Uh, it wasn't... Um, it, it was one of those places, and still is, and has been for years, that people migrated to, and interesting people and artist, artistic people. And um, Francis Newbury was really concerned for his health, and he said, you know, you just desperately need to go somewhere healing, have a break, go and spend the summer in my house. And so him and Margaret, they rented out their beautiful home in Glasgow, which is now part of the Hunterian Gallery, and people can take tours around it. And they... Um, they um, arrived, and sadly, within weeks, the First World War broke out, and um, everybody else left, because Suffolk... It's kind of on the front gonna, line. Yeah, it's like the most easterly point of Britain. It kind of sticks right out. People were terrified that the enemy was going to sail across land and invade, so everybody who could leave left, but they didn't leave, and they stayed, and they stayed, and they stayed the end of the summer and they stayed into the winter and they stayed into the new year and slowly spy mania took over and um, people became more and more suspicious of them. Yes, because they spoke funny, being Scottish. Um, they'd written the German letters, which were which were d discovered, and they were having dealings on the continent. Um, and in the, the book, he is arrested. Was he arrested in real life as well? You see, I was never sure if that was the anecdote that would never turn into a novel because it was actually, worryingly, the only thing that happened in the, in the anecdote. You know, just nothing happened, nothing happened, and then he got arrested. But luckily, it did, it did happen. And in fact, it happened even in a way more sort of disastrously for him than I imagined. I thought maybe he'd just been cautioned or something. Mm. But it turned out he had been arrested. Margaret, his wife, who was actually born in England 
of Scottish descent, so she spoke with an English accent. She was away visiting family when he was arrested. And um, I think he knew that things were becoming serious. I think he realized people were more suspicious of him and watching him more closely because he wrote this, this letter that I discovered sent mm. from Wolverswick, this heart-rending letter to a great supporter of his, William Davidson, Please, if you could find your way to sending me one pound, I would be forever grateful. It's a begging, sad letter, I isn't know. it? It's so heartbreaking because um, he's so talented and trying so hard. I and know, and they were so desperate. And within days, he was arrested. And he was... Um, the More serious things were going to follow, but Margaret managed to summon somebody who had... Um, was, was married to a, an English aristocrat or or in some way had a contact in the government, but she arrived with her, as it said in something that I read, her good English accent, and she spoke strongly and firmly about this is a great man and you will regret this if any harm comes to him. I think she even brought Lady so-and-so with her mm. to speak on her behalf, and he was let go, but with the proviso that he never again entered the, s the counties of Norfolk, Suffolk, or Essex. <laughs> A terrible fate but actually I'm so <laughs> uh, it would be for me I have to say but it, I love the way they thought that will that will show him yeah um, but actually rather wonderfully he did return quite often and that's I realized that's actually when he stayed in the pub it right was, it was later when he'd come back not when, when he'd, he'd come back okay. that's when he stayed he arrived and he just thought you know I won't take notice of that. Thomas's life is pretty brutal um, in, in, in the pub. I mean, his father is a, is, is a drunken bully, um, and he finds uh, a kind of refuge, an outlet in his art. But it's not like it's something he thinks he could ever do, is it? He doesn't think he could be an artist. And in fact, he's kind of ashamed um, of, uh, of his work. He's hiding away in the, a library somewhere. Where is that library? Um, Fisherman's Library. Yeah, there's a wonderful sailor's reading room in Southwold, which has these beautiful... Um, models of boats made, you know, just delicate, intricate models made from tiny pieces of wood, I guess. So people, you know, it was, a, it was a refuge for fishermen to spend time in when there was no fishing, when the seas were too rough. And it's a, but it's a very unlikely friendship, isn't it, between this, this boy um, in the pub um, and, and this artist, um, albeit one down on his luck, who's, who's come to the village. How does it come about? Well, I worried at first that it was too unlikely a friendship, and I imagined that Thomas would be more of a watcher and an observer of Macintosh than a real friend. But I was writing as well as um, doing my research, and I discovered so many things about Macintosh that after a while I realized that they were made for each other. Because I didn't realize, I knew so much about Thomas, partly because I'd been saying hello to him all these years, but also because I'd been working on him before I got to Macintosh. Um, and I knew that he was the youngest son of many who had died from the family, that he was lame, that he um, you know, had an interest in drawing because he, was, he couldn't go to sea, so he drew boats in a way of kind of showing his interest. But Mackintosh was also the youngest son of many who died in his family, which I didn't know. He had one, it was lots of sisters, and there had been one brother who had survived, but who had run away to sea mm. and, and died somewhere in South America. Also, I didn't know that Mackintosh was lame as well. Um, just so many things, sort of when you're absorbed in a book sometimes, 
it seems as if it's meant to be and you discover all these things. I wonder if as well there was something subconscious about the voice of the child watching the artist learn to work, if that was something that, that you had experienced watching your father paint, um, because the child doesn't understand lots of things that the adult does and then come their understanding comes about. And I wonder if that was an experience that you'd had well, or were aware it, of. It wasn't one that I thought of at all when I was writing the book, because what I wanted to do, the more... Um, I found out about Macintosh. The more I went to see things he, he designed, the more I looked at his art, the more enamored I became of him. And I thought I would like to try and explain to the reader just how incredibly talented and amazing what he did was. And I wanted to put it into the book without it being kind of hectoring or, or dry academia suddenly mm. coming out of this novel. And so I thought, I know, Thomas can become fascinated by his work. And I tried to find a way that he could genuinely become interested in it without it seeming like I'm just sort of slipping this in. Um, so he becomes interested in partly, he's painting a lot of, there's a lot of, it's not just his work. He was um, a part of a group called The Four with his talented wife, her sister, who was an extraordinary artist, Frances MacDonald, and her, and the sister's husband, Herbert McNair, all four of them, and they were, between them, there were a lot of pictures of naked women. So Thomas sort of gets <laughs> interested in that way initially, and, and, and sort of steals pamphlets. And also, he sees that quite a lot of these books are in German. And so he starts to think, am I going to actually save my country by, maybe, maybe this man is a spy. Thomas is the one to think at first, mm. but he kind of comes around to, to being an ally of Macintosh when he realized that actually, you know, maybe Macintosh is going to save them all. Um, so I was trying to find a way, but slowly along the way, Thomas really does start to understand the working methods. He just watches him for so many hours over so many days, paint these beautiful watercolors. And after a while, he starts to bring him possible ideas and, and you know, dig up snowdrops and bring him things. Um, and I suppose without knowing it, I was using what I also knew, which is I spent my childhood watching my father paint and being bemused, sometimes frustrated. Like, really, you're still on that pitch? Um, because as a child, you don't have any, you know, my father painted very, very slowly. As, as he got older, he speeded up his work, and I, time speeded up for me. So it used to be changed to going, I cannot believe you've done all those pictures in the last year. <laughs> but as a kid, I was like, really, you're still, that's two, I'm now nine. You were painting that when I was seven, which was a lifetime. So I, I changed my attitude, but I kind of gave that to Thomas without really realising it. I'm going to take a couple of questions and we'll go to a good break. Sylvia, of course, um, and then Rhoda there. Yes, go. The question was about a piece that you'd written for Elle, which was to do, why haven't you done it yet? And how you'd felt about your acting and then going to your writing, quieting an inner critical voice. So how do you quiet the inner critical voice if indeed you do when you sit down to write? I find the best way to quieten it is to do it. I worry and doubt and fret much more when I'm not writing than when I'm writing. When I'm writing, I'm just doing it and then I'm too tired to worry. When I'm not... 
that's when it creeps in. Oh God, I thought for a minute when you said just do it, I thought you meant you sat there going, you can't do this. You're a terrible oh, writer. You were kind of like castigating yourself. Yeah. I'm thinking, really, does that work? Um, Rhoda. Oh, it's a, that's a question. So, so you know, Macintosh, Frank Lloyd Wright, hard to say that name. Um, uh, do you think, as some people do, that, that he was derivative of, of Macintosh, or is it a kind of cultural consciousness? Well, well, it's really interesting, because they were born in the same year, but Macintosh died too young, and Frank Lloyd Wright lived a long life. And so his fame in America, you know, when you say, actually, Macintosh, they're, they're contemporaries, and, you know, mm. he's as great an architect as... People can see that if they go and look at his work, but that's not really known. And I think that they, I think that there was a lot of influence. I think that uh, Macintosh's influence in Europe was huge, and he influenced people like Gustav Klimt, all sorts of people who are um, so renowned. And I don't think people necessarily realize Frank Lloyd Wright was probably more influenced by him, I think, than people realize. I agree, but then I'm totally beguiled by him now. You know. Yes, I'm going to agree with that as well. Um, it seems like a really good place to leave it. We're going to have a break. Mr. McAmey is a wonderful book. Please thank Esther Freud, Alan Johnson. We'll be back in 30 minutes. 30 minutes. <laughs>